What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Guys, what happened today? Uh, I had my morning huddle call with the people at my work, and they weren't the nicest. It's a long story, but I work in a department for my company that is probably the most toxic group of people I've ever worked with in my entire life. I like to be fun guy, uh, fun guy Glenn, but uh, it just doesn't work on these people. Uh, they snipe at each other. They make personal insults on a regular basis. And one thing is, is during our morning huddles, uh, one aspect is calling a shout out for someone that went above and beyond what they do for their job. And it's something that no one ever responds to. Is there any shout outs for anyone today? Nothing. Uh, today, my sort of boss, my temporary manager, he said, I'd like to give a shout out to Glenn for going above and beyond on this one thing. Which was just him being nice. And also, I think, job security for him because he wants to show that his team is doing well. So he's just got to give a shout out eventually to somebody for some reason. So he picked me. And really, it wasn't that exciting. And uh, But it was nice. It's just nice to have someone recognize that you're doing something and that you're a, a good proletariat but the rest of my team jumped in to say I should not get that shout out or that credit and that shout out the credit goes up the ranks to people higher up and I don't know why it's not like I get a cookie or something later but they said I should not get the credit I was just doing my job and uh, the words embarrassing came out at some point and uh, should have done it differently uh, did it wrong. All sorts of phrases were popping out. And it's par for the course. Uh, it's not just me that this happens to. Uh, they, like a pack of wolves, feed on each other. Uh, they've done it to each other. The most angry guy out of my group got a shout-out one time for actually doing something that was pretty, pretty labor-intensive, pretty annoying, and he did it. He's also the most angry person in the entire world. But he did a good job on something, and the lesser angry person in the group really went off on a tangent, saying uh, he doesn't deserve it, don't give him the shout-out, he's just doing his job. So it's it's the thing, it's just basically it was my turn. So that was kind of a poop on my day. Uh, that was a pretty, pretty poopy way to start out my morning. Uh, I took a shower after that and muttered angrily to myself as water dripped around my hateful lips. And uh, then the upside of that, 
is that I uh, got a message. Instant message from the most vocal angry person who said, Hey, sorry for being such a turd. I've uh, been dealing with a headache for the last 24 hours uh, and just didn't like the way that that was handled, but it was nothing against you personally and that kind of thing. So I let that person off the hook, uh, thank them for being so nice. Like I was trying to reward, you know, change behaviors through reward. Uh, reward that person by saying thank you. That was really kind of you. I really appreciate that. No, I didn't take it personally. So letting him off the hook and blah, 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 blah. And, uh, so that was nice. That was a nice little, uh, turn of events for what started out so horribly. And then after that, I went to my oldest daughter's middle school graduation, which was ridiculous. Uh, I've never had a middle school graduation. Uh, they have a graduation for leaving elementary school, too, in this beautiful city that they go to school in. And uh, all the parents there were making jokes about how ridiculous it is, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, so uh, my ex-wife and I were sitting next to each other, and uh, we were making little jokes here and there and just chatting and whatnot. And one of the kids that came up on the stage to get his fake diploma, his last name is Muscles, which blew my mind. That I've never thought of that as a last name. Like you think, like, oh, what's a cool name to have? And it's like Max Power, which is like the Simpsons thing. And other things, but just it can be anything. Steven Muscles is the coolest last name on the face of the earth. The kid was really skinny, which is unfortunate. So he's not living up to his name. And I wonder if his parents are just just beefcakes, just muscle-bound and magnificent, are kind of disappointed in their kid who, like, listens to, you know, Screamo and sits in his room and, like, leave me alone, Dad, I'm not going to the gym with you today, and just so skinny. Uh, wanted to throw a muscle milk at that kid. Get him on the right track. Help him get his gains. Uh, after that, I went to my youngest daughter's uh, softball game. And I've mentioned this before. She never played softball before and didn't really, uh, wasn't good at it on her first practice or so. Uh, and it really made her upset. She was crying and wasn't feeling good about it. So she practiced every night for like two hours, practiced and practiced, practiced throwing, practiced hitting, uh, catching the whole thing. And uh, she went back and she was good. She wasn't like outstanding, but she was keeping up with the rest of the kids. So that was a nice little turn of events for her. She was doing pretty good. She became a reliable player. When she's up at bat, it's 50-50 if she's going to like run to, you know, first and whatnot. So uh, after that, she said to her mom, uh, I'm keeping up. I don't need to do practice anymore. So tonight she was doing a good job and she heard... Uh, a few of the kids, I heard them too. Uh, a few of the kids say, uh, Hey, Glenn's daughter, you're awesome. You did a great job. More than once. I heard it personally a couple of times. So she did really good. And uh, I think she was pretty proud of that. And so I, then she, after you know the game wrapped up, and it was long. I mean, it was a nice night out. Uh, it was like 80 degrees, and as the sun set, it was like 70-something. It was just a nice night, but man, the gnats. I got gnats in my nose. I got gnats crushed in my ears. 
And I know I inhaled a couple gnats, so there's some live gnats right now glued to the sticky inner walls of my lungs. Uh, we sat there for three flippin' hours, just dealing with gnats, going completely insane. And, uh, but she came out afterwards and said, I need to practice some more, because she's all excited. She wants to do better than be average. And that was cute to see. So, the day turned out okay, after all. Uh, book boys. Got pushed off till Wednesday. So, we were going to originally uh, record tonight, but the whole daughter baseball game threw the whole thing off. So, I've personally listened to the horrible drunken mess that was what we tried to record. And it was actually pretty funny, except that it, you know, we were drunk. So, uh... We both decided, let's just scrap that, and we'll just record the first episode of The Golden Compass, chapters 1 through 5. So that'll be fine, Uh, but I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. He is a funny guy, and uh, a great addition, a friend of the podcast. So let's dive into the book. Also, there may or may not be inappropriate content for kids or really sensitive adults. It's public domain books, for the most part, that I'm reading, so um, I think it's probably pretty safe, and you probably shouldn't worry about it. But I don't read any of this stuff before I start doing the podcast, so I'm kind of learning about the book as you do. And uh, if anything really cool happens that's sexual in nature or involves a lot of swearing, I'm going to be pretty impressed, just like you. And maybe your kid in the back seat. Have you ever listened to a LibriVox recording and thought to yourself, who are these people? Who's the guy with the labored breath and the cats yelling in the background that takes the time to read Anne of Green Gables to me? Uh, I found myself more focused on the individual reading the book than the actual story itself. Sitting there studying, listening for little sounds, the cars outside the window, the creaks and groans from the floor above the head of a neighbor who lives upstairs in the apartment. That is what I would like to recreate here for you with Nuzzle House Audio. I am Glenn Nuzzles. Oh boy, we're uh, just making way through this book, and boy can I wait to, uh, I can't wait to finish it. What happened in the last episode, the last chapter? the beginning of the end. Uh, Ernest scolds more people, tells them that they're morons and they just won't believe him. No one ever learns. Sort of like my fake Pete guest said, uh, he keeps trying, but he's just not getting through to him. Uh, Even Avis thinks that he might be wrong uh, in his giant speech, another chapter with a giant speech, but... She, uh, of course, kind of just waits till he's dead to say, I don't know if I agree with him on that, but I'm still going to print it in this memoir of his because uh, he's dead and I want to. We learned that the union is not a seat in paradise, which I thought was a pretty funny line. I don't know if being in a union ever was a seat in paradise. Uh... The oligarchs are forcing socialists to fight in the political arena. Something that they've always wished for, which they thought someday we're going to be politicians and senators. But when they're forced into it, they realize these cunning oligarchs, they've 
put us in a position that we're not prepared for. Uh, he thinks that the oligarchs are going to start spending all their money on art and, uh, and cities. Uh, wonder cities is what he called them. Um, and that that was going to be their downfall. That's where their gluttonous, disgusting ways would finally uh, turn against them. Uh, can we reflect on that in our modern times? I don't really see it happening. Uh, I still see cities cutting corners a lot. I don't see art being a big thing. Uh, you know, beautiful buildings aren't really built. It's just kind of up to corporations if they want to have a beautiful building. And so none of this is really coming to pass, but... Uh, he thinks that it'll never happen, the social revolution, in his lifetime. And he asks Avis to, quote, sing me to sleep. I have had a visioning and I wish to forget. Which is like the best line out of this entire book. So with that, let's begin reading. Chapter 15. The Last Days. It was near the end of January 1913 that changed, that the changed attitude of the oligarchy toward the favored unions was made public. The newspapers published information of an unprecedented rise in wages and shortening of hours for the railroad employees and iron and steel workers and the engineers and machinists. But the whole truth was not told. The oligarchs did not dare permit the telling of the whole truth. In reality, the wages had been raised much higher, and the privileges were correspondingly greater. All this was secret. But secrets will out. Members of the favored unions told their wives, and the wives gossiped, and soon all labor world knew well what happened. It was merely the logical development of what in the 19th century had been known as a grab-sharing. In the industrial warfare of that time, profit-sharing had been tried. That is, the capitalists had striven to placate the workers by interesting them financially in their work. But profit-sharing as a system was ridiculous and impossible. Profit-sharing could be successful only in isolated cases in the midst of a system of industrial strife. For if all labor and all capital shared profits, the same conditions would obtain as did obtain when there was no profit-sharing. So out of the unpractical idea of profit-sharing arose the practical idea of grab-sharing. Quote, Give us more pay and charge to the public, was the slogan of the strong unions. And here and there, uh, this selfish policy worked successfully. In charging it to the public, it was charged to the great mass of unorganized labor and of weekly organized labor. These workers actually paid the increased wages of their stronger brothers, who were members of unions that were labor monopolies. This idea, I say, was merely carried to its logical conclusion on a large scale by the combination of the oligarchs and the favored unions. As soon as the secret of the defection of the favored unions was leaked out, there were rumblings and mutterings in the labor world. Next, the favored unions withdrew from the international organizations and broke off all affiliations. Then came trouble and violence. The members of the favored unions were branded as traitors. 
and in the saloons and brothels, on the streets and at work, and in fact everywhere, they were assaulted by the comrades as they had so treacherously deserted. Countless heads were broken, and there were many killed. No member of the favored unions was safe. They gathered together in bands in order to go to work or to return from work. They walked always in the middle of the street on the sidewalk. They were liable to have their skulls crushed by bricks and cobblestones thrown from the windows and house tops. They were permitted to carry weapons, and the authorities aided them in every way. Their persecutors were sentenced to long terms in prison where they were harshly treated, while no man... Not a member of the favored unions was permitted to carry weapons. And violation of this law was made a high misdemeanor and punished accordingly. Outraged labor continued to wreak vengeance on the traders. Cast lines formed automatically. The children of the traders were persecuted by the children of the workers who had been betrayed until it was impossible for the former to play on the streets or to attend the public schools. Also, the wives and families of the traders were ostracized, while the corner groceryman who sold provisions to them was boycotted. As a result, driven back upon themselves from every side, the traders and their families became clannish, finding it impossible to dwell in safety in the midst of the betrayed, betrayed proletariat. They moved into new localities inhabited by themselves alone. In this, they were favored by the oligarchs. Good dwellings, modern and sanitary, were built for them, surrounded by spacious yards and separated here and there by parks and playgrounds. I don't see anything like this happening in the real world. All right, I'm going to let it go. Their children attended schools especially built. I mean, this is just being rich. And in these schools, manual training and applied science were specialized upon. Thus, and unavoidably, at the very beginning, out of this segregation arose caste. The members of the favored unions became the aristocracy of labor. They were set apart for the rest of labor. They were better housed, better clothed, better fed, better treated. They were grab-sharing with a vengeance. In the meantime, the rest of the working class was more harshly treated. Many little privileges were taken away from it, while its wages and standard of living steadily sank down. Incidentally, its public schools deteriorated, and education slowly ceased to be compulsory. The increase in the younger generation of children who could not read nor write was perilous. The capture of the world market by the United States had disrupted the rest of the world. Institutions and governments were everywhere crashing or transforming. Germany, Italy, France... Australia and New Zealand were busy forming cooperative commonwealths. The British Empire was falling apart. England's hands were full. In India, revolt was in full swing. The cry in all Asia was, Asia for the Asiatics! Exclamation point. And behind this cry was Japan, ever urging and aiding the yellow and brown races against the white. Oh, boy. <laughs> and while Japan dreamed of continental empire and strove to realize a dream, she suppressed her own proletarian revolution. 
It was a simple war of the castes. Cooley versus Samurai. Oh my lord. And Cooley. Can we just take a minute to look up what Cooley means? Okay. I just paused for a second to look it up. Yeah, so it is supposed to be offensive. Cooley, the definition of Cooley from Merriam-Webster is in italics, usually offensive. An unskilled laborer or porter, usually in or from the Far East, hired for low, substantial wages. First known use, 1622. Eh. Well, it was written of its times. So, it's them versus the samurai, and the coolie socialists were executed by tens of thousands. 40,000 were killed in the street fighting of Tokyo, and uh, in the feudal assault of the Mikado's palace, Kobe, Kobe was a shambles. The slaughter of the cotton operatives by machine guns became classic as the most terrific execution ever achieved by modern war machines. Most savage of all was the Japanese oligarchy that rose. Japan dominated the East and took to herself the whole Asiatic portion of the world market, with the exception of India. England managed to crush her own proletarian revolution and to hold on to India, though she was brought to the verge of exhaustion. Also... She was compelled to let her great colony slip away from her. So it was that that the socialists succeeded in making Australia and New Zealand into cooperative commonwealths. And it was for the same reason that Canada was lost to the mother country. But Canada crushed her own socialist revolution, being aided in this by the Iron Heel. At the same time, the Iron Heel helped Mexico and Cuba to put down revolt. The result was that the Iron Heel was firmly established in the New World. It had welded into one compact political mass the whole of North America, from the Panama Canal to the Arctic Ocean. And England, at the sacrifice of her great colonies, had succeeded only in retaining India. But this was no more than temporary. The struggle with Japan and the rest of Asia for India was merely delayed. England was destined shortly to lose India, while behind that event loomed the struggle between a united Asia and the world. So, kind of interesting that he's calling out Japan as growing in strength, and this is before everything that happened in the 1920s you know, and 30s, and uh, he's calling out how England was losing all of its uh, acquisitions. I don't know if it's genius. Uh, maybe there's a lot of signs of that happening uh, before when he wrote this book. I don't know. How much credit should I give this guy? I don't know. And while all the world was torn with conflict, we of the United States were not placid and peaceful. The defection of the great unions had prevented our proletarian revolt, but violence was everywhere. In addition to the labor troubles and the discontent of the farmers and of the remnant of the middle class, a, re a religious revival had blazed up. An offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventists sprang into, sprang, sprang, sprang into sudden prominence, proclaiming the end of the world. 
Quote, confusion thrice confounded, exclamation point, Ernest cried. Oh, Ernest cried that? Ugh. How can we hope for solidarity with all these cross-purposes and conflicts? And truly the religious revival assumed formidable proportions. The people, what of their wretchedness, and of their disappointment in all things earthly, were ripe and eager for a heaven where industrial tyrants entered no more than camels passed through needle eyes. Wild-eyed and turning preachers swarmed over the land, and despite the prohibition of the civil authorities and the persecution for disobedience, the flames of religious frenzy were fanned by countless camp meetings. <laughs> it was the last days, they claimed. The beginning of the end of the world. The four winds had been loosed, God had stirred the nations to strife. It was a time of visions and miracles, while seers and prophet, oh, prophetesses were legion? Prophetesses. It's split up on the page. Uh, the people ceased work by hundreds of thousands and fled to the mountains, there to await the imminent coming of God and the rising of the hundred and forty and four thousand to heaven. But in the meantime, God did not come. And they starved to death in great numbers. Where was their god now? That's me saying that. It's not in the book. In their desperation, they ravaged the farms for food and the consequent tumult and anarchy in the country districts, but increased the woes of the poor expropriated farmers. Also, the farms and warehouses were the property of the Iron Heel. Armies of troops were put into the field, and the fanatics were herded back to the bayonet point to their tasks in the cities. They were broke out in ever-recurring mobs and riots. Their leaders were executed for sedition and were confined in madhouses. Those who were executed went to their deaths with all the gladness of martyrs. In the time of madness, the unrest spread in the swamps and deserts and waste places from waste places from florida to alaska the small groups of indians that survived were dancing ghost dances and waiting the coming of the messiah of their own that seems a little flippant and through it all with the serenity and certitude that was terrifying continued to rise the form of that monster of the ages, the oligarchy. With iron hand and iron heel, it mastered the surging millions. Out of confusion brought order out of the very chaos wrought its own foundation and structure. Just wait till we get in, the Grangers said. Calvin said it to us in our Pell Street quarters. Look at the states we've captured. You socialists uh, back us, we'll... Make them sing another song when we take office. The millions of discontented and impoverished are ours, the socialists said. The Grangers have come over to us, the farmers and the middle class and the laborers. The capitalist system will fall to pieces. In another month, we send 50 men to Congress. Two years hence, every office will be ours, from president down to the local dog catcher. <laughs> To all of which Ernest would shake his head, of course, and say, How many rifles have you got? Do you know 
where you can get plenty of lead? When it comes to powder, chemical mixtures are better than mechanical mixtures. You take my word. Oh, boy. Well, that chapter was shorter than I expected. And better than I expected. Uh, I didn't get a chance to jump in with a book recommendation. Not that I'm going to do this all the time, but I lined up a couple. So, I'll give one to you now. (coughs) Towards the end. This is a book called... The Island of the Mad from Penguin Random House by Laurie R. King. Let's learn about it. Laurie R. King's uh, New York Times best-selling series featuring... Is every book on Earth a New York Times best-selling series? Like, every book I ever read about says that they're a best-selling book on that paper. Uh, featuring Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes is the most sustained feat of imagination in mystery fiction today. Parentheses, Lee Child, exclamation point. The last thing Mary Russell and her husband, Sherlock Holmes, need is to help an old friend with her mad missing aunt. Lady Vivian Baconsfield was spent most of her adult life in one asylum after another, since the loss of her brother and father in the Great War. Although her mental state seemed to be improving, she's now disappeared after an outing from Bethlehem Royal Hospital, better known as Bedlam. Russell wants nothing to do with the case, but she can't say no. To track down the vanished woman, she must use her deductive instincts and talent for subterfuge and enlist her husband's legendary prowess. Together the two travel from the grim confines of Bedlam to the murky canals of Venice, only to find the shadow of Benito Mussolini darkening the fate of the city, an era, and a tormented English lady of privilege. Let's read some of the uh, quotes that people have to say about this book. Once again, says the book reporter, Validates Laurier King as the preeminent Holmes writer working today. <laughs> is that a is that an actual like definable skill? Like I, I write books, but I'm a Holmes writer. A truly memorable mystery. Laurie King brings her always amazing imagination to the page to enthrall readers, as only she can do. By Suspense Magazine. Eh. Kirkus reviews a superb dot 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 shocking dot 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 come for the mystery stay for the sightseeing the jibes at fascism and the heroine's climactic masquerade as a silent film star Harold Lloyd so there you go check it out the island of the mad by Laurier King, a novel of suspense featuring Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes. That's a thing you could do. It's like if I wrote a mystery involving... I don't know, Abraham Lincoln. You can do it. No one can stop you. Apparently Sherlock Holmes is public domain, so just do what you want. It's fine. It's fine. So what did we learn today? 
We learn that labor unions always have scabs. And those scabs are armed. And they have nice homes. Uh, grab sharing is a thing that's somehow different than profit sharing. Uh, the oligarchy in the Americas somehow survived while the European oligarchy uh, and governments fell. The author has a, a mild and dismissive uh, racism when it comes to Asians. Uh, we learned that coolie is not a very cool term. Uh, he called it on the Japanese rising and England losing power, but did not call it when it came to Australia becoming this uh, commonwealth or Canada falling back into its mother country because it's just kind of always been part of the mother country. At least part of it has. The other part's part of a different mother country. They're both part of their own mother countries. Uh, or the Iron Heel helping Mexico. We've seen our own rise of certain people that just don't like Mexico. So there's uh, the quelling of Mexico has not been a thing. Uh, a demonizing of them is kind of the the religious revival uh, with the end of uh, the end of world cults. Sure, I mean that's kind of easy. You can call that. Anytime someone sneezes, that happens. Uh, interesting kind of visual imagery that he gives with the end of the world cults, not killing themselves on the mountains, waiting for Christ to come back or uh, Ernest to descend down from the heavens. Uh, the, they go into the farm fields and start stealing food, which causes the military to run in and chase them back or execute them. And boy, do they love being executed. They all get to be martyrs. It's a lot of fun for them. Florida is considered a waste place uh, where Native Americans uh, just sort of dance around to their own gods. So that was pretty cool. The socialists claim to uh, kind of, they, they said, we're going to get all the government over the time, even that coveted and sweet, sweet office of dog catcher. Uh, and Ernest says, you, you better gun up. Get real gun heavy, because it's going to get messy. So that was chapter 15, The Last Days. Uh, chapter 16 better be just as exciting. If not more, please be more exciting. And uh, hopefully a lot less dialogue from Ernest. Though this is pretty light on it. So it's, um, this book is kind of like going through waves of extreme pain. If you're sick and you're dealing with extreme pain, that uh, this book was a lesser wave of pain where you can breathe for a moment. Hopefully the next chapter will just be nice. As always... I am obediently yours, Glenn Nuzzles.